All right. You look in your bulletin. There's a sermon. So we have a sermon today. As this week, everyone is uh, needing to move on their various providential outings and uh, vacations. Well, the bulletin had to be in on Monday, and there just wasn't a title at that time, so we have the sermon. Here's the title of the sermon, if you folks that need to write it down. Uh, Expand Your View of Mercy. It's the same passage. We have the passage, but the title is Expand Your View of Mercy. All right? All right. How many of you are married here? Okay, a good number of us. Uh, so how many times has this happened in your marriage? Guys, your wife is distraught. She's upset. She's clearly needing to talk. Of what? You're clueless. You're completely clueless, but you know she needs to talk. And so you quickly rewind the past five minutes to go over the five minutes to make sure that you're not the cause of what's taking place. Once you've rewound about a quick five minutes, it takes about 30 seconds, you realize you're pretty confident that you're not the cause of what's taking place. Uh, So you become the sensitive, intuitive, 21st century male, and you say something like this, Honey, I intuitively perceive, with, with deep understanding, that you're upset. But you brought your A game this time. So you even move beyond that, and you brought your A game, and you say, Honey... Do you need to talk? (laughs) Now, those of you that are married, you know that that is equivalent to asking her if she needs to talk. For her, that's equivalent to her asking you on a Monday night, do you want to watch Monday Night Football, honey? The Cowboys and the Giants are playing. You can eat your food in front of the TV. You don't even have to do dishes. Would you like to do that, honey? So, honey, would you like to talk? Oh, yeah. She'd like to talk. So you listen. And you listen. And while you're listening, you figure out what the problem is. And you know how to fix it, right? And so when the talking stops and your listening comes an end, the opening is clear as day. So you reach into your man toolbox. You pull out your all-size-fits-all tool, your fix-it tool, and you go to work. Now, your first clue that something's not right is the look on her face. The second clue that something's not right is the look on her face. The third clue that something's not right is the look on her face. On the third clue, you finally clue in. Because what is it, men? How can we... What's taking place here? How can we help the poor single, possibly to be married, young adult here, how can we help him from the horror and the terror of the look? How can we do that? How can we help them? What are we going to tell them? We're going to say, if you're married one day, young man, and you're sitting here, what you can learn from us is that your wife does not need to be fixed. She doesn't want to be fixed. She's not a problem to be solved. She just wants you to what? Listen. There you go. Now, enough of the man tip. It's over. But here's the issue. What happens, though, when a real problem arises in you and a real problem arises in someone you love and you can't fix it? Let's get beyond the, you know, you just want to be listened to stuff. But there is a real problem. And it's not good. And it's in you. It's in someone you love and you can't, for, you can't fix it. It's beyond fixing. It's beyond a family member fixing. It's beyond friendships fixing. It's beyond common grace medication fixing it. Education fixing it. It's beyond a parent fixing. There's no human, there's no human effort anywhere that can fix it. So what do you do? Well, statistics are correct, and just plain good old observation is correct. Here's how we do do. We pretend everything's just fine. We cover it up, and we hope, you know, mysteriously it'll just go away someday. We despair. We go after the next best thing. If we can't fix it, we go after that which we can fix, so we focus on behavior. And so we tweak behavior things, thinking we got it. At least can get our hands on it. 
We seek escape comfort. It can range from the less harmful to the utter devastating in our lives. We blame God. We blame our parents. We blame our genes. We blame bad luck. We blame a life situation or a circumstance. So what do you do when you come face to face with a problem in you and a loved one that you can't fix? Welcome to Lydda. Welcome to Joppa around A.D. 40. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're going to look at 9.32, down to the end of the chapter, to 43. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named, the way you pronounce this is an I, Aeneas. Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when, she had, when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood there beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all aside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, let's, let's say this end of the verse, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and, said, and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he, persecu- he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Father, we ask that you would help us even now. We acknowledge our weakness. We acknowledge our, the closeness of our hearts. We acknowledge that we lack spiritual strength. We acknowledge, Lord, that even our thoughts uh, wander and redirect themselves in all kinds of directions. And so, oh Lord, we ask that you would come down, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would shine and show forth the riches of your mercy in this passage. And so, oh Lord... Come now, act on behalf of your name, exalt your glory, exalt your name, exalt your word above all things, even now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this is a strange, strange passage. It sits between Saul and it sits between chapter 10, Cornelius. So what do we have at Saul? At Saul, we have the the apostle to the Gentiles. In chapter 10, we actually get the Gentile, Cornelius, a, a Roman warrior whom the gospel's about to move out to. But what we have is this strange passage because we've just seen the conversion, the commission of, of Saul. So the, the Gentile mission is on its way. The last frontier to the gospel is about ready to be broken or crossed. But it's interesting, though, that we get Saul, but then we flip back to Peter. And Peter steps back in when you would assume and easily presume that Saul should be on the rise and the rest of Acts is Saul going to the Gentiles. So it's fascinating that we're here and Peter's here, that he steps back into the picture. So if you're reading your Bible and you're reading Acts and you're following the logic of the book of Acts, and the logic of the book of Acts originates in 1.8, right? Jesus gives this promise and he says, All authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples, right? You will see power. You will make disciples. You'll be my witness in Jerusalem, the primary area, the first target of the gospel. Then the barrier will be crossed to the next, which is Judea and Samaria, second barrier, second frontier of the gospel. And the final frontier of the gospel is what? The ends of the earth. 
the Gentiles. Now we're moving forward to the ends of the earth. We're moving forward to the Gentiles. And you're reading the scriptures and you're following the order. And we got warmed up for the Gentiles with the Ethiopian eunuch, remember? He literally came from the ends of the earth. But remember, who was the one that brought the gospel to him? Philip. Was Philip an apostolic witness? No. So there still needs to be the confirmation or the establishment of the frontier of the gospel by an apostle. So Philip actually was the first one that went into the Judea-Samaria. He was the first one that broke ground there. But remember, there needed to be the apostolic witness come in after to confirm it and make it official. And that's why you had that weird passage about still needing to receive the Holy Spirit. Remember? Well, here's the same thing. Philip reaches the ends of the earth... But now we need the apostolic witness, and that's about ready to happen in 10 with Cornelius. So again, we're asking ourselves, you're reading the passage and you're saying, I I don't get it. Why is this passage here? I mean, we know the scriptures. We know the scriptures are highly selective history. They're not exhaustive histories. So when you get to Acts, it's not that everything written about the church is being written. Everything's not being written. Luke is compiling a highly selective historical work because it has a purpose. Everything has been selected and ordered that has taken place for a purpose. Well, what's the purpose? Well, the purpose is the point. Generally speaking, here's the purpose. God is preparing Peter for Cornelius. God is preparing Peter for chapter 10. Now, if Peter needs to be prepared for something, how much do you and me need to be prepared? In other words, we're back to Peter because God wants you to see something in Peter and in yourself amidst an unfixable problem. He wants you to see something about Peter and about yourself. When you get in face-to-face amidst things in yourself and things in other people that you love that you can't fix. This is the, this is the point in general terms, and then we're going we're gonna to move into it. The point is this, is that God wants to expand your view of mercy. Okay? Now, those of you that are good Calvinists out there, and I know there are some, I'm a good Calvinist, and those of you that are Protestants, you're not Roman Catholic, you're saying, I I get that. I know it's by mercy. I know that I'm not saved by my works. I know that I'm saved by the grace of God. I know that I'm saved by the mercy of God. And I know that I'm saved by Christ alone. And those of you that do have a, a Roman Catholic background you know that what I just said is accurate and inaccurate. Roman Catholics do not believe you're saved by works in a technical sense. They believe that God works in works to you that's part of your being justified. They believe that God infuses a grace in you, a righteousness in you that's part of you being justified. But Protestants have always said, no, that's not true. It's not a grace worked in you, even though God does it, that's inside of you that God looks at and it's part of you being right with him. It's not an infused righteousness that your heart is regenerated and and sanctified and to an extent that God looks at that and says you're justified. Protestants have always said it's a righteousness outside of you it's the work of another outside of you alone that makes you right with God no work inside of you only the work of another now you know that I know that so so why do we need to hear this well here's my first answer my first answer is is Peter need to hear it Peter was a good Calvinist. 
Peter was a good Protestant, and he still needed to expand. He still needed his view of mercy expanded. Here's some other reasons. If you're not able to forgive, your view of God's mercy needs to be expanded. If you're not able to forgive someone, your view of God's mercy needs to be expanded. Here's another. If you are suffering and feel that God is punishing you, you need, and I need, our view of God's mercy expanded. Here's another one. If you're stuck in self-loathing, you know what that means? You're stuck in self-loathing. You're always, you're always hitting the tape, hitting rewind of the shouldas, wouldas, and couldas in your life. And when you hit the shouldas and wouldas and couldas in your life, you're always looking back at all your failures and all your mistakes, and you loathe yourself. You can't get over it. I should have gone, bop. I should have done, bop. I should have married, bop. I should have, should have, should have. You need your view of God's mercy expanded. If helping others is easy for you, but the right motivation is not. In other words, it's easy for you to help someone. When someone's in need, you're the first in line. But you've noticed over the years that your motivation, though, is not necessarily right. You like to help people because it makes you feel better about yourself, you start realizing. You also start feeling superior to others. In other words, you're out there hammering away at social justice and hammering away at serving other people. You love to, it's easy for you to, but you start realizing you have this, this motivation of it makes you feel better and you start feeling superior than those rich, self-centered, self-absorbed suburbanites. Right? You need your view of God's mercy expanded. Now, just so you think I'm not going to leave out the other side, those of you that if helping others does not come easy. Now they got there because of their own doing anyway. And all they do is become a burden to the church, to your family. I mean, all I do if I help them is enable them. And they'll take advantage of me. Maybe. So... If helping others does not come easy for you, your view of God's mercy needs to be expanded. Now, finally, if you think you have a right to a happy life, you know what I mean by that? I mean, I don't think anyone here would say, my personal creed is I have a right to a happy life. But when things don't go our way, we think we do. We think, look, I, I live a pretty good life. I'm a Christian. The way the cards are stacked against me today, I don't think God's dealing with me fairly. If we think that, and we do, your view of God's mercy needs to be expanded. So here's our plan. Our plan is to get into that expanded view of God's mercy. In this text is an unbelievable expanded view of God's mercy. It's going to shine through two people in two places. That's where we're heading. And once we, we see this expanded view of God's mercy, we're going to follow it into our own lives. In other words, what is this expanded view of God's mercy supposed to do to you? What should this text do to us? How should it impact us? And that's what we'll end with. So right now, let's look at the two people in two places. Now, the way we're going to do this is this. We're actually going to work backwards. What I mean is this, is that at the end of this chapter, at the end of this, the last verse that we're going to look at, Peter is prepared for Cornelius. An expanded view of God's mercy took in him. An expanded view of God's mercy expanded him. It happened. So we know that it took in Peter... The goal is for it to take in you. Now, how do you know it took in Peter? It's that last verse. Look at the last verse, 43. He stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, who cares where Peter stayed? I mean, okay, Holiday Inn Select, Marriott, great. Who cares? You care where Peter stayed 
when you realize who he stayed with. A tanner. Do you know what tanners were seen at that time? A tanner slaughtered animals. A tanner worked with dead animals. A tanner, quote, was a despised trade, end quote. A tanner was unclean every area of his life. A tanner was ostracized to outside by Jewish law. He was unclean. By the purity laws, ceremonial laws, unclean. He was ostracized, had to live 50 cubits or 73 feet at least the minimum outside the city. The smells, the blood, the carcasses, it was just, don't even go near him. You know what rabbinical law actually even said? If you're engaged to a man, so why are betrothed people, fiancés, if you're engaged to a man and in the course of that engagement, now remember, engagement then meant marriage, just waiting for the consummation of it and the final ceremony of it. When you got engaged, you didn't break up engagements. It's not like here where you have five engagements going and the one that says, yes, you're married. You're engaged, you're married. If you're married and you come to find out or you're engaged, betrothed, and you come to find out that your fiancé is a tanner, rabbinical law says, and it's encouraged, that the godly thing to do, the righteous thing to do, is to break it off. And you're encouraged to do that. So we come to a tanner. And Peter stays with him. Now when you get to chapter 10, you're going to see that he still needs even further expansion of God's mercy in his own life. He's going to have visions of unclean animals. And God's going to tell him they're clean. But Peter has moved a great step by the end of this chapter, and Lord willing, so will we. Because what happens is, is Peter doesn't feel superior to the tanner. He doesn't feel superior to him. He goes to his house. He stays with him. And it says not even just for a day, for many days, the text says. So he's not feeling superior because he's a tanner. He's not looking down on him as if he's unclean and I'm not. He's also not afraid of becoming unclean by being with the tanner. You notice that? To stay in the house, he's not afraid of his uncleanliness affecting him so that he gets less of God's favor. He gets less of being blessed by God. He's not worried there's going to be less of a Christian to stay with a tanner. And then here's the big one. He wasn't afraid of the religious leaders telling him, you're causing other people to stumble. Look where you're staying. You know what Peter would say to many of us that, you know, these things that we think cause people to stumble today? He'd say, you need to stumble over those. You need to make people stumble over those. He didn't fear the rejection of religious leaders saying, you know, you're setting a bad spiritual leadership example, staying with a tanner. You know, you're dirty, staying with a tanner. You're going to corrupt your family and your children, staying with a tanner. Do you see what's happened here? Peter has had an expanded view of God's mercy. It took in him. So let's look at that expanded view. Are you ready? Here it is. Two people, two places. The first one is here. Aeneas. Now, Aeneas was probably a believer. Every time in Acts that if the gospel or a healing takes place, if a healing takes place and they're not a believer, there's mention of their conversion. But here we have two Christians, so it's even interesting. It's more interesting. Now remember where we are. We're, going, we're in the Judea-Samaria area. It's just a gradual thing that the Lord's doing. And Peter, the church has been around for about six years, but the church is almost primarily Jewish. It's been confined to Jerusalem. Now, what's happened here is that Peter is traveling into the next frontiers, the Judea-Samaria area, but it's still Jewish people. It's just Jewish people now in Gentile places. 
So first it was Jewish people in the Jewish place. Now it's Jewish people in Gentile places. By the time we get to Cornelius, it's Gentile people in Gentile places. That's what's happening here. So he's going out into these areas and he's visiting the people of God in these areas. These people could have gotten here because of Saul's persecution and fled Jerusalem, and that's how they got in these areas. Or Philip's ministry. These could be conversions from Philip's ministry, but all we know is that they're believers. He's going out to visit them, preach to them, give them the apostolic witness, but also he says the text says he seeks out one particular person. So he's, he's familiar with Aeneas. He knows him. And then we're, we're introduced to Aeneas, and we're only given two things about him. He's been bedridden, bedridden for eight years because he was paralyzed. Okay? That's all we get. So what we get is Aeneas is useless. He's useless in the ways of usefulness. He's useless in the ways of identity and meaning in the world today. He's useless. He has no career. He has, he's lost his gifts. He's lost his abilities. He has no means to support a family, a wife and children, if he's married. If he's not married, he has no means to have children. He's useless. But he did know he had an identity in, jo- in Lydda. His identity was, you're the paralyzed guy, aren't you? Now, many moons ago, many years ago, uh, I was at a school my freshman year to play football and to wrestle. I had a, a neck injury, ended it. Do you know why I left that school? I left a school of 3,000 to go to a school of 30,000. I left Gettysburg College to go to UMass, or what we affectionately called ZooMass. Do you know why I left? One reason. I did not want to be known as the guy that hurt his neck so he couldn't play football and wrestle anymore. I didn't want to be looked as the guy who hurt his neck. I didn't want that identity. Aeneas has no choice. He can't move. He's the paralyzed guy. He's useless. He's also helpless, not just metaphorically, literally. He's helpless. He can't take care of himself. He can't do anything for himself. He can't feed himself. He can't clean himself. He can't go to the bathroom by himself. He can't even move a position in his bed by himself. He is utterly Helpless. Now, don't miss this one little detail about him. He's been paralyzed for the last eight years. So at one time, he did eat by himself. At one time, he did wash himself. At one time, he went to the bathroom by himself. At one time, he used to travel to his friends by himself. At one time, he used to enjoy all of God's creation and blessings by himself. At one time, he was free to do these things by himself. But now he's helpless. But he's also unfixable. Ananias cannot work up the willpower and the determination and the effort to heal himself. Aeneas cannot rely on his own goodness or even his badness to heal himself. He's unfixable. And look what Peter does. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Aeneas, you're fixed. And we now begin to get an expanded view of God's mercy. In the midst of being useless, in the midst of being helpless, and in the midst of being totally hopeless and unfixable, Peter walks in and says, Jesus Christ heals you. And all of a sudden, mercy is much more unmerited than we ever dare to believe. And that's the point. Now we move to Joppa because Joppa is only about 10 miles away from Lydda. 
Lydda is 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's here. You're going to go northwest towards the coast, Lydda. You're going to go an extra 10 miles to 35 to the coast, the actual coast of Joppa. Now, Joppa is a very famous place. Joppa has the only natural harbor on the whole Mediterranean coast from Akka, which is 70 miles north, all the way down to Egypt. There's no natural harbor in that whole ancient coastline except at Joppa. Now, remember what came through Joppa. When Solomon was building the temple and the cedars of Lebanon were coming through, where did they come through? Joppa. When Jonah left for Tarshish, running away from the Lord, where did he dock off to go over to Tarshish? Joppa. When Peter gets ready to break the barrier into the last frontier of the gospel, into the Gentile territory, where's his stopping point? Where's his launching pad? Joppa. Now in Joppa, they hear about what happened to Aeneas. News spread quickly, the text tells us. And when we get here, we have Tabitha. We're introduced to another character, and her name's Tabitha. Now she's introduced in a manner that highlights her character. It's the only time in all of the New Testament that the word disciple is used in the feminine. The whole New Testament. That's quite a marquee. Disciple is always used in the masculine to describe everyone in the New Testament, except Tabitha. It's used in the feminine. Now, her character is of such that she's likely a wealthy person, and she's a very generous person. The text just says she's full of good works and full of mercy to those in need, especially the destitute widow. All her energy, it seems, the text is communicated, all her energy was in the unseen, behind the scenes, non-glorious, taking care of destitute widows by making clothes for them. And she's highlighted like no one else. I mean, we could just hit pause button real quickly right here. We could hit pause and we could say, you know, do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? We could hit the pause button. We could say, do you want to really matter in the church? You do things no one even knows about, like Tabitha. Acts of mercy. Meeting and taking care of the needy. Helping the distress. Cutting yards for people who need their yards cut. I mean, the list goes on. But what do we want? I I want to teach! Everything's public. Anyhow, we get this Tabitha, and what we find is she got sick, right? She gets sick and she dies. Now, in her death, it's worse than Aeneas. In her death, she's now completely helpless. She's completely hopeless. She's completely unfixable. Now, right after she dies, this passage gets real strange. Because what happens here is that in Jewish law, what must happen is the body must be buried on the first date. So far, so good. You wash the body. We find in the text, that's normal. That's what you do. You wash the body, you anoint the body, you prepare it for burial. That date. What's strange and abnormal is they put the body in the upper room. That's not normal. That's strange. That's weird. Tabitha's body does not get buried on the first day. What in the world is going on here? Well, we start getting a clue when you realize, it's very interesting, that in the Old Testament, when resurrections took place in the Old Testament, the bodies were in upper rooms. Elijah, Elisha, upper rooms. So what were these saints doing? Were they reading their Old Testament? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. It just tells us they did something really strange. They put a body in an upper room, didn't bury it on that day, and they sent for Peter. When Peter arrives, it's a repeat of what happened to Jesus and Jairus' daughter. Do you remember? 
when Jesus is going to heal Jairus' daughter, he says he's going to be healed, it's going to be fine. But while he's on his way, there's a Syrophoenician woman who has endless bleeding. He's in the crowds. He's pressed around. He gets stalled, quote, healing her. Jairus' daughter dies. He walks into a scene and a situation. It's complete commotion, weeping and wailing going on. People round all around Jesus, complete commotion going on. Mayhem's going on. The same situation Peter walks into, except it's, it's all these widowed women. And what they're doing is they're showing her the tunics that she made. They're showing her all the clothing that he made, she made. And they're saying, look, look. It's undergarments. It's outer garments. They're showing him everything. It's just complete. He's swirled around. And he, then he does exactly what Jesus did in, in Darius' household. He, he kicks everybody out. Because he was there. He saw what Jesus did. Kicks him out. And then this is absolutely beautiful. He says the exact same words that Jairus, that Jesus said to Jairus' daughter. Tabitha, in the Greek, Anastathi. Now there's only one letter that's different. Talitha means little girl. Tabitha is the actual name of the person here. Arise. Tabitha. Arise. And she does. And all of a sudden, Peter, his view of God's mercy is just blowing his heart to pieces. God's mercy is much more unmerited than he ever dared to believe. I mean, Peter had a view of God's mercy. Yes, he did. We have a view of God's mercy. And every single person here needs to understand, you and me, that there is much more unmerited mercy than you ever dared to believe. In mercy. When we come face to face with a problem in yourself and in another person, when you come face to face with a problem that you cannot fix, the reason why you pretend everything's fine, the reason why you cover it up and just hope it'll go away, the reason why you try to escape in a comfort that could be harmful to very destructive, the reason why you, you blame others, blame your parents, blame a spouse, blame a child, blame your genes, blame bad luck, the reason why you go after the next best thing and only focus on behavior change, the reason why is because ultimately, ultimately, when you get to the bottom of your mercy, your understanding of mercy right now sitting here, Ultimately, when you get underneath what you say and what you publicly confess and what you believe when things are going good, ultimately, when you get underneath your view of mercy, you find merit. Merit. That's why you must have your mercy expanded. When you blame others, when you can't fix it, it's because you're trusting in your positive merit. Follow me. Deep down underneath why you're blessed, why things go well, why things are the way they are, is a merit. But when you're blaming others, you have a trust in your positive merit. In other words, you're doing well. You're doing good in your eyes. So when things can't be fixed and things can't be wrong, the fault is not with you. It can't be fixed and it can't be a problem because you're doing good. The problem must lie elsewhere. The problem, you don't deserve what's taking place because you have positive merit. And so you gotta, you got to find the fault somewhere else. So you blame someone else. You get mercy 
You get blessing, you get things going your way by merit. That's what we think, even in our view of merit, in our view of mercy. Now, we despair when we can't fix it because now we're trusting in negative merit. When we're trusting in negative merit, we're looking at our lives and we see that we don't have merit. We see that we're failures. We see that we blow it, but you're trusting in merit in a negative sense. So all is hopeless. All is lost. And you, you loathe yourself because of your failures. You loathe yourself because you trust in a negative merit. You loathe yourself because it's your problem. You're the cause. You're why it's not fixed. Finally, too, we focus on behavior change and we can't fix it because we're trusting in effort merit. If I do my hard work, I'll get rewarded. If I put in my effort, blessing will come. And so I control my change. I control my life. I control everything, my effort. I'm trusting in my effort merit. You see how this works? Now, mercy is much more unmerited than you dare to believe. Now, when that starts breaking into your heart, it's like a key that opens a closed heart. And mercy ends up being the only key that unlocks your heart. So for all of us here, if you're thinking, how does my heart get unlocked? How does my heart change? How does it happen? Some of you want to run to the terror of the law. Some of you want to run. So we know what what Spurgeon said? Oh, I wish I could get the quote perfect. He says, if you come to a closed heart and you bang on it with terror, all it will do is cause the person behind to hug their sins even more. Only mercy unlocks the door. Wow. I believe that. Mercy is much more unmerited than you dare to believe because the resurrection publicly reveals the merits of Jesus. Remember what's happening in the resurrection. That's the whole context of this passage. Jesus Christ heals you, Aeneas. Jesus does. Oh, wait a minute. You're healing me. No, I'm not healing you. He's healing you. The resurrected Jesus is healing you. The resurrection of Jesus is a public display to all creatures in the invisible realm and all creatures in the visible realm that there is one who has merit. And his merit shines like the sun. And the merit is the only place you're going to find merit. You're not going to find merit anywhere on earth, under the earth, above the earth. Remember Revelation 5. Look to and fro for the one who's worthy to open the scroll. John says, I am undone. There is no one. And they looked everywhere in heaven. And he gets a tap on his shoulder and he says, Don't. Get up. There is one. There is one who has merit. And the resurrection of Jesus is the merit of Jesus shining publicly everywhere. And from the merit of Jesus flows mercy. You have an unmerited mercy because you have a meritorious prince. So the well of mercy flows freely to you because of him, not because of you. Nothing to do with you. You're useless. You're helpless. You're hopeless. You're unfixable. So watch what happens when this starts getting into you now. And Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. What happens here? You who are far from God, 
when you hope and trust in the resurrection, if you're sitting here as a, as a, uh, a professing Christian and you feel far from God, or you're sitting here as a non-professing Christian, I don't believe this stuff, you feel far from God. The answer for you, the way that your farness is brought near is sheerly, only because of the resurrection of Jesus. Only His merit. So when you trust in Him, you get mercy like forgiveness. You get mercy like His acceptance. You get mercy like His abiding presence with you all the days of your life. You get mercy on days you don't feel like you get it or not. You get mercy on days that you're not doing good that day. You get mercies every morning, new every morning, all the time, because it flows from the merits of Jesus, not from your merit. Those of you that are facing an unfixable problem, when you trust in the resurrection of Jesus, you find mercy right now for that problem. And yes, the mercy might come in that you change. The mercy might come in that your loved one changes. The mercy might come in that the problem or the situation changes. Maybe you're healed. But let's say, possibly, you don't change. Your child doesn't change. Your spouse doesn't change. The loved one doesn't change. Your sickness doesn't change. What do you get? You get his, his abiding, merciful presence and comfort Renewing strength, his love, you get him right now. And you know what else you get? You get the power to hope in the better day to come. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus guarantees that all you've ever dreamed life to be and all you've ever wanted life to be will be one day. The resurrection guarantees it. Now, those of us that are blaming others, we need to refuse to trust in our positive merit. You have no merit. There's only merit in one. What you want is mercy. And when you realize you have no merit and you can't trust in your positive merit, but you trust in the merit of another, you want mercy. And when you want mercy, you realize the depth and the width of that unmerited favor, that unmerited mercy. And then you give it to others. You don't blame others. You give the mercy that you've been given. And those of you that are despairing, what you need to do and I need to do is we need to refuse to trust in our negative merit. You have no merit. It's the same with those that are trusting in their positive merit. They have none. If you're trusting in your negative merit, you have none either. So it's even worse than you thought. That's right. It's even worse than you thought. And so you don't have merit. It's completely hopeless. But when you realize you're trusting in the merit of another, now let that merit fill you with mercy. Do you need forgiveness? To know he loves you? His presence and his power to strengthen you? You got it. Let his merit fill you with mercy. You're not going to experience mercy when you fill yourself with your merit or demerit. It's not going to happen. Finally, when you focus on your behavior change, what you need to refuse to trust in is your effort merit. You need to get away from effort merit. I love effort merit. I think that's the best thing going Love it. What's the problem? Work harder. Ask my kids. We're digging a pit the other day. Cal was digging the pit the other day. Yesterday. Swinging harder. Work harder. Effort. 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 Okay. If you're like me, you need to refuse to trust in your effort merit. You need to. And what you need to do is you need to let the power of the resurrection show you that there's only one merit that matters. 
And from that merit flows a geyser of mercy. And that alone reaches your heart so that when you do change your behavior, it's fruit that comes from real roots and not another self-engineered, behavioristic, self-improvement plan of your merit. Okay? All right. Ooh, cheapers, we got in. All right. Did you notice what happened every time God's unmerited mercy broke out in this passage? Did you see what happened every time it happened? Look at verse 35. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Wow. All the residents. Is that hyperbole? I don't know. We'll find out in heaven. But all the residents. That's pretty big. That's a revival, wouldn't you say? Grand scale. Huge. Everyone in the town, all the residents, get a witness of mercy. And what happens? They turn to the Lord. Unbelievable mercy. Turn to the Lord. It's just boom. Now go to the next one, verse 42. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Every time unmerited mercy breaks out, people are trusting him. If you see it, you're like, I want it. When it happens, it's the most beautiful thing there is. Now, he's not used to the sound of someone knocking on his door. Good reason he's not used to that sound, because he lives outside, ostracized, right? Just the smell of his place keeps people away. Death, uncleanliness, a tanner. So when he hears the knock, it startles him. But he goes to the door, and then he's even startled more. There before him is the Apostle Peter. Now, he's seen the Apostle Peter, but he's never seen the Apostle Peter in his place. He's always seen the Apostle Peter in clean places, not at his door. And he's looking at the Apostle Peter, and he has this big smile on his face, the Apostle Peter does. Because probably at this point, the Apostle Peter's looking at the tanner, and he's recalling Zacchaeus, a tax collector, up in a tree, when Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, you dirty, filthy, unclean thing. He didn't say that, but that's what could be said to everybody else. What's he talking to that dirty, clean, unclean thing? Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. So Peter's standing there with a big smile on his face and says, Simon, I'm coming to your house today. Mercy is much more unmerited than you ever dare to believe. And when you dare to believe, your view gets expanded. Amen.